So we're going to take our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 75. Matthew 26, 1 to 75. Now Matthew recorded all that he heard and saw to demonstrate that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. The long-awaited Messianic King. And there's two key events that bookend the Gospel of Matthew. His birth and his death. And those two events form the bookends to this Gospel record that demonstrates that Jesus is the Messianic King. In Matthew 1 and 2, we had Jesus' birth. We saw the Messiah's chronicle, His confirmation, His certification, and the crisis. And now the other end of the book, the other side of the bookend of Matthew, is Jesus' death in chapters 26 through 28. And over the next several sermons, we're going to look at the Messianic corroboration, the Messianic condemnation, the Messianic cessation, and the culmination. Now, for Jesus to be Messiah, He has to be two things. He has to be divine... And he has to be human. And the messianic corroboration here in Matthew 26, 1 to 75, sets forth nine events that verify or corroborate Jesus' messiahship. Nine events here that corroborate his messiahship. And each of these events serves as a fulfillment, if you will, of messianic prophecy. Now, individually, these events would not necessarily mean anything. But when these nine events happen to one person, Jesus, they corroborate that He is divine and human. He is the God-man, and therefore He is the Messiah. So let's begin with Matthew 26 and verses 1 through 5. The first event corroborating Jesus' Messiahship is the plot of the religious leaders. The plot of the religious leaders. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, Not during the feast, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. The plot of the religious leaders. Now notice this pericope begins with the phrase, when Jesus had finished all these words. That's a statement that we see several times throughout the, throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a common phrase that indicates the end of Jesus' sermon. And so here we have the end of his Olivet Discourse. His last sermon. And as he's concluding his sermon, as he's concluding the Olivet Discourse, we see the next statement... He says to the disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is going to happen. It's coming. Now, Nisan 14 is annually every year the day of Passover. And in AD 29, the 14th of Nisan, Passover fell on a Wednesday. So two days before Passover would then be Monday, Nisan 12th. Now, Jesus' statement regarding the Passover points to the significance of his death. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. 
Peter continued in 1 Peter 1, 18-21 that we are not redeemed with corruptible things or perishable things, but with the precious blood of a lamb, a Passover lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so on the day of Passover, Nisan 14, the same day the Passover lambs were to be slaughtered to make temporary remission for the sins of the Jewish people, Jesus, the Passover lamb, would die to make eternal remission for the sins of the whole world. As John says in 1 John 2, 2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Again, notice what Jesus says here. He says that the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now that Son of Man is a title, a messianic title that announces three things. First of all, the Son of Man title announces Jesus' humanity. He is man. 1 John 4, 2. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Secondly, Son of Man, that title announces Jesus' humility. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Philippians 2.6, His humility. And three, the title Son of Man announces Jesus' deity. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9 The Son of Man is to be handed over. In other words, that verb there, handed over, is present tense. It's telling us that the events of his death are already in motion. He announces that not only is his death near, but he's going to die by crucifixion. Now, crucifixion was a Roman punishment reserved for the worst offenders. And then notice what he says. Then. Then the chief priest and elders... At the same time Jesus is finishing his sermon and telling the disciples he's about to die via crucifixion, the chief priests and elders were gathered together. They plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now the chief priests and the elders refer to the Sanhedrin, the highest court of the Jews. And this gathering of the Sanhedrin took place in the court of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Now the court, the term court here is not referring to a courtroom. The Greek term here actually refers to a courtyard outside of Caiaphas's house. So this is an informal meeting of the Sanhedrin. So they're secretly meeting to plot. How can we get him and kill him? Now look at the insidiousness of their plot as revealed in the term by stealth. That mean, that word stealth means deceit. They are willing to lie if necessary to put Jesus to death. Now some of the group said, well, well, wait a minute. We've got to be careful because we don't want to cause a riot amongst the people. Jesus' revelation of these events underscores that he was not a victim of the cruel machinations of religious madmen. No, what we see here is that Jesus was sovereignly directing the events so that he died on Passover as the Passover lamb for our sins. In the words of Paul to the Philippians, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Philippians 2.8 The second event corroborating Jesus' Messiahship is the perfume of Mary. The perfume of Mary in verses 6 to 13. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor with you. But you do not always have me. For when she poured the perfume on my body, she did not prepare me, or she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. The perfume of Mary. Now notice this event occurs when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Now during Passover, lodging was a premium in Jerusalem. And so Jesus opts to stay two miles away in the town of Bethany with his friends at the home of Simon the leper. Now since Simon is living in a house, we can deduce that he was no longer a leper. Matthew 26 and verse 2 told us that it was two days before Passover. So we know that the events happening here are happening on Monday the 12th of Nisan. And Matthew tells us that a woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume and pours it on him as he's reclining at the table. Now John chapter 12, the parallel passage, helps to identify Simon and this woman. It says that Jesus came to Bethany, and they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Notice who's at the house. Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. Lazarus is sitting at the table. Martha is serving the supper. What does that imply? It's her house. It's their house. But this house belongs to Simon the leper. We can deduce then that Simon was their father. Simon's the dad. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are the children his, and their siblings. Now, seeing Mary pour out this perfume on Jesus' head, the disciples become indignant. Now, we can understand some of their indignation. It says the perfume could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Again, understandable indignation because Jesus has said many times that we're to care for the poor. The problem was here that these disciples did not understand the meaning of Mary's sacrifice. As an aside, John 12, 4-6 reveals that Judas asks, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus rebukes them, revealing that Mary had done a good deed to me. Indeed, Mary's sacrifice of such a costly item was an act of worship. Furthermore, Jesus explains, you'll always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me with you. 
That comes from Deuteronomy 15 verse 11. In other words, listen, you're always going to have opportunities to do good to the poor. But you're not always going to have an opportunity to do good to me. Because I'm about to die. There's an essential principle here for us, friends. As believers, we need to understand this principle that timing must be a key consideration in consi when we consider spending our kingdom resources. Timing has to be a key consideration in spending kingdom resources. Now, Jesus further explains that Mary's motivation was to prepare him for burial. Now, in that culture, when somebody died, their bodies were wrapped in cloth layers, soaked with spices and perfume. Now, you remember in the first pericope, in the first paragraph, Jesus said that he would die by crucifixion. Now he reveals, and I'll be buried. And finally, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus looks ahead at the future and sees the gospel being proclaimed in the whole world. The gospel will have a global impact. Now, what is the gospel to which he refers? The term gospel, euangelion, means good news. The heart of the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Not only did Jesus reveal that He would be buried, but He's here anticipating that He's going to be resurrected. How do you know that, Pastor? Real simple. It's not good news if Jesus stayed dead and buried. It's only good news because He's resurrected from the dead. And as Mary honored Jesus, Jesus honors Mary. Anywhere the gospel is preached, Jesus says Mary's act of worship should be rehearsed. Friends, I think we would do well to follow Mary's example. That we should be giving to Jesus worship, sacrificial worship. Sacrificial worship is so lacking in our day. You see, we want to worship God to meet our needs. We want our worship of God to fit our schedules. Some can't even commit to worshiping weekly with God's people. Friends, it behooves us as believers that we, to, as we consider Jesus' costly sacrifice on the cross to ask, how does our worship compare? Are we making sacrificial worship? Folks, if our worship doesn't cost us something, if our worship isn't sacrificial, does it really honor Him? The third event corroborating Jesus' Messiahship is the payment of betrayal. The payment of betrayal. Verse 14 to 16. One of the twelve named Judas went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now again, we're still on the Monday the 12th. And notice Judas is singled out, one of the twelve. Now, back in chapter 10 and verse 4, Matthew already told us that Judas was going to be the betrayer. But here we're getting the actual events behind the betrayal. Angry over the money, and Jesus' stinging rebuke, Jesus goes to the chief priest, that's Caiaphas, 
and says, what are you willing to give me to betray him? See, he knew their desire to rid themselves of Jesus. And he saw it as an opportunity for him to make some money and get payback to Jesus, against Jesus for rebuking him. The chief priest takes up Judas on his offer and weighed out 30 pieces of silver for his betrayal. You know, Mary's worship was costly, but Judas's betrayal was cheap. How so? 30 pieces of silver. In Exodus 21, 32, 30 pieces of silver is the price that a dead slave is worth. They're only worth 30 pieces of silver. The chief priest valued Jesus as nothing more than a dead slave. But little did Judas and little did the chief priest realize that they were fulfilling Zechariah 11, 4-14. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 4, God told Zechariah to be a shepherd to a flock doomed to slaughter. He says, thus says the Lord my God, pasture, shepherd the flock doomed to slaughter. And Yahweh used that prophecy to pronounce future judgment against Israel for crucifying the Messiah. It was an announcement of the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen in A.D. 70 and the subsequent dispersion of the Jewish people, all because they crucified their Messiah. As payment for shepherding the doomed flock, Zechariah 11.12 says, the people weighed out 30 shekels of silver as Zechariah's wage. Their payment implied that, yeah, listen, that, that, those lambs were doomed, and so we're just paying you to shepherd them, but you're worth to us nothing more than a dead slave. In, the, in this passage then, Judas is the shepherd. Jesus is the sheep doomed to slaughter. And to Judas and the religious leaders, Jesus was nothing more than a dead slave. The fourth event corroborating his Messiahship is the Passover. In verses 17 to 29. 17 to 29. Now the Passover summed up here in three paragraphs. We have the preparation for the meal in 17 to 19. The revelation of the betrayer in 20 to 25 and the institution of the Lord's Supper in 26 to 29. So as we consider this fourth event, I'm going to look at three statements here. Number one, verses 17 to 19. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He says, Go into the city to a certain man, say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. The preparation for the meal. Again, Matthew says it's the first day of unleavened bread. Now, unleavened bread falls on, the Feast of Unleavened Bread falls on Nisan 15. Now, wait a minute. How did we go from the 12th to the 15th? What happened to the Passover on the 14th? Okay, let's real quick just take a moment here. Matthew 26, verse 17 in the Greek text reads, Te de prote ton azumon, which means before the day of unleavened bread. That term, the first, protos, should be translated as before. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if I go over to John 13, verse 1, I find a similar Greek phrase. Pro de tes hestes to pascha, which renders now before the feast of Passover. So, what, so if unleavened bread occurs on the 15th, and, the prep, and they're, they're asking how are we going to prepare, in other words, it's got to be some day before the 15th. Again, Passover occurs on the 14th, and what are they preparing for? They're preparing for the Passover. Now, the 12th's behind us. The only day left is what? The 13th, okay? 
So unleavened bread's the 15th, Passover's the 14th, the 12th's already gone, that was Monday. So now this is Tuesday the 13th, okay? The disciple, or Jesus directs the disciples, go to Jerusalem to a certain man and tell him the teacher says, my time is near, I'm going to eat the Passover at your house. Now, notice that phrase, the teacher. That implies for us that this certain man wasn't some rando. This certain man was a believer. He was a disciple. He knew who the teacher was. And so the disciples did as Jesus directed and prepared the Passover. Without question, without hesitation, they obeyed. You know, over the three years that they spent with Jesus, they had received many strange instructions. And each time they obeyed, they were amazed. And this time would be no different. You know, my friends, I would challenge us today to be like those disciples. That when Jesus gives us a command, we obey it without hesitation and without question. Verse 20 to 25. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They're grieved, and each one begins to say, Surely not I, Lord. He answers, He who dips his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Now, you know, I prepared this message all this week, and I just caught something new. Look at this. The disciples said, Surely not I, Lord. Judas says, Surely not I, what? Rabbi. He couldn't call Jesus Lord. Mm. Now, Matthew notes, Evening has come. And Jesus is at the table with the twelve disciples. This is the end of Nisan 13th. Evening has come. Now again, we understand that Jewish reconciles day by evening. So 6 p.m. on the 13th becomes the beginning of what? The 14th. Okay. So it's the beginning of Passover. And Jesus says as they're eating at the table, as they're having their Passover dinner, one of you is going to betray me. And who is that one? The one who puts his hand in the bowl with me is my betrayer. This comes right out of Psalm 41 verse 9. My close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread lifts up his heel against me. And just as Jesus is making that statement, Judas dips his hand with him. Surely not I, Rabbi. What's Jesus say? You said it yourself. You the man. John 13, 21 and John 13, 30 tell us that after the morsel, after he ate the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. After taking the morsel, he went out immediately. Now, put a pin in that for a moment. Jesus next says to the disciples, The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written. All these events are leading up to his death, just as they have been prophesied. Now, I want to make it clear. Just because these events are prophesied doesn't remit Judas's sin. Jesus says, Woe to that man to whom, the son, to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That statement demonstrates that God's sovereignty does not relieve humanity of our responsibility for our actions. Yes, God is sovereign, but we're still responsible for our actions, good or bad. Jesus proclaims it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. No severe judgment has ever been rendered against a person 
than for the Lord himself to say it had been better if he had not been born. That sealed Judas's fate. He betrayed Jesus and Jesus condemns him to the lake of fire. Judas's action put him beyond forgiveness. That brings us to 26 to 29 and the institution of the Lord's Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and gave thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. We've got the institution of the Lord's Supper. And you know what's noteworthy? Get that pin I told you about a moment ago. Judas was removed before Jesus infused new meaning into the Passover. Before he created what we call the Lord's Supper. The unregenerate do not belong at the Lord's table. Taking the unleavened bread, Jesus said, this is my body. No longer would the unleavened bread look back to their redemption from Egypt. Now it looks back at our redemption from sin. And Jesus says, this bread symbolizes my body. How? How does it symbolize his body? First of all, leaven is a symbol of sin. And when he compares himself to unleavened bread, Jesus says, I'm sinless. Also, as unleavened bread is made, it is striped and pierced with a fork to maintain its flatness. Once the bread is baked, tiny bubbles appear in the piercings, which after baking are dark brown, making it appear as if the bread is bruised. Those bruised areas, those stripes, symbolize the beatings and whippings that Jesus endured in the crucifixion. The pierced bread symbolizes His body. His head pierced with thorns. His hands and feet pierced with nails. His side pierced by a sword. All of that in the bread. I challenge you next week when you look at that bread, that unleavened bread, Think of Isaiah 53 verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. That chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Then he takes the cup. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the remission or for the forgiveness of sin. It's Jesus' blood, not animals' blood, that inaugurates us into the new covenant. That permanently atones for our sin. And Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine anymore until that day when I drink it new with you in the the Father's kingdom. That tells us that Jesus is anticipating partaking of the bread and cup again in the future. He's he's told him I'm going to die. He's told him I'm going to be buried. Now he's telling him what? I'm going to be resurrected. He's also anticipating that we as believers would continue partaking of these elements as symbolic memorials of his death to remind ourselves of our redemption from sin. And additionally, he anticipates a reunion with us in the kingdom, which we will enjoy when the millennial kingdom comes after the tribulation. The fifth event, corroborating Jesus' Messiahship, Matthew 26, 30-35. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead to you of you to Galilee. Peter said, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, 
Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. After the meal, Jesus did what? He went out to the Mount of Olives. And here comes the prediction. All of you will fall away because of me this night. Now the verb fall away here is not the verb for apostasy. It's the verb for scandalize, scandalizo. They're all going to be scandalized because of their association with him. And they're going to abandon him. They're going to betray him. They're going to leave him. But their betrayal fulfills Zechariah 13.7. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In this prophecy, Jesus is the shepherd and the disciples are the sheep. But instead of leaving them discouraged, however, Jesus adds, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. I'm going to meet you in Galilee after my resurrection. Now, Peter doesn't hear any of that. He just flat out rejects Jesus' prediction and says, They may all fall. I will never fall away. Jesus gives a second prediction. This very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter, you will reject and verbally disown me three times before day breaks. Oh, Peter and the disciples, oh no, Lord, no, no, we'll die for you. Friends, we need to learn a lesson here. We must not underestimate the weakness of our own flesh. You know, if Peter and the disciples could reject and deny Jesus, who are we to think that we're incapable of doing the same? We need to heed Paul's admonition. I challenge you. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Fall. Scandalizo. Unless you be scandalized. Consider your ways, folks. That brings us to verses 36 to 46. The sixth event. Corroborating Jesus' Messiahship is the prayer. Then came Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane. Said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He takes with him Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them. Fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, you men could not keep watch for, with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed. And found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time saying, The same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. We've got the prayer of Jesus. The sixth event. The prayer of Jesus. Now, they came to Gethsemane and he left eight of the disciples there. Takes three a little further down the path. And he begins to be grieved and distressed. In other words, we see here the emotional weight, the spiritual weight of the pending event of his death is bearing down, weighing down on him. Here is God, 100% God, but also fully human. And he tells James, John, and Peter, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. That verb, keep watch, Gregorio, means be vigilant in prayer. He took his closest friends and said, pray for me as I'm struggling emotionally. 
And then Jesus falls on his face and prays. Now that posture showed the desperate nature of his prayer. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, not as, but yet not as I will, but as you will. He prayed to his Father, take this cup of wrath from me. But nonetheless, he was still resolved to be obedient to God's will. Folks, I think what a great lesson for you and I to apply to our own lives. We can bring our petitions to the Father, and we should. But we still must resolve to obey His will, even if we don't like the answer we get. Well, after praying, He comes and finds the disciples sleeping. And He rebukes them for sleeping. Because they failed to pray for Him when He needed it the most. He goes to prayer a second time. He tells them, keep watching and praying. Keep being vigilant and praying. So that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Folks, we all have moments of weakness. And the best antidote, the only antidote to times of spiritual weakness, the only thing that's going to ward off fleshly desire is prayer. You've got to push through and pray. Nonetheless, after praying, he again finds them sleeping. Because their eyes were heavy. They could not overcome their physical desires so that they could uphold their friend and teacher in prayer. Disappointed, Jesus wakes them and warns, the hour's at hand. I'm about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. My friends, listen, we are only going to stay loyal. We are only going to remain loyal to Christ if we stay alert and prayerfully depend on God. Will you stay alert and pray? Will you, are you willing to forgo physical pleasure for a period of prayer for Jesus' sake? Verse 47 to 56, we have the perfidy, the perfidy, the perfidy of Jesus and the disciples. That's P-E-R-F-I-D-Y. While he was still speaking, Judas came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one, sees him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would against a robber? Every day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left Him. And fled. The seventh corroborating event is the perfidy of Judas and the disciples. Now Judas' perfidy, his betrayal was quickly revealed. While Jesus is speaking, here comes Judas with a large crowd with swords and clubs sent by the Sanhedrin. See, the Sanhedrin sent this crowd armed to the teeth. Because typically Jesus was surrounded by a crowd. They wanted to avoid that riot. But instead of a crowd, what they find... Just 11 men in Jesus. See, Jesus chose to go to Gethsemane with only 11 people. He, didn't, he wanted to do that to create an opportunity. Now's your chance to arrest me. Quietly and peacefully. Messiah was in control the whole time. And because it was night, 
And Judas didn't want to arrest the wrong person. He says, here's a sign. Seize the one I kiss. Now that's odd to us, but in the Jewish culture, a kiss was a customary greeting. Nonetheless, his kiss was not a greeting, but a betrayal. And when he kissed Jesus, Jesus willingly surrendered, saying, Friend, do what you've come to do. At this time, Peter draws out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Immediately, Jesus rebukes Peter. Put your sword away. Put your swords away. Listen, he says, My father could put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels. Lord has a standing army at his disposal if he needs one. But he says, listen, if these events don't transpire, how will the scriptures be fulfilled which say they must happen this way? This is part of God's eternal plan, Jesus says, and I'm not going to stand in its way. He then addresses the armed crowd. Did you come out to arrest me like a robber? Listen, all of this is taking place according to the scriptures. Specifically, the prophets he's referring to are Isaiah and Zechariah. And notice that after confirming that these things are happening, these events are happening according to prophecy, what did the disciples do? They betrayed Jesus. Only a few hours earlier, they swore they would die with him, and now they commit perfidy, betrayal. They desert him. But you know what? God's plans cannot be undone by us. Every speck of Judas and every aspect of the disciples, betrayal, perfidy, was part of God's eternal plan. Verse 57 to 68 brings us to the eighth event, corroborating Jesus' Messiahship, the prosecution of Jesus. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Did you, Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. I place you under oath. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, that's God, coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robes and says, He's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And the council answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, you Messiah. Who is the one who hit you? So he's arrested and taken to the house of the high priest, where the Sanhedrin's gathered. And as he stands before the prosecution... The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, are trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they can put him to death. And it's that, that verb there is in the imperfect tense, meaning they didn't try it once. They kept trying to find false witness. The religious leaders clearly violated the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Finally, they find two people 
who claimed that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now that is an event, that that statement actually occurred three years earlier. In John 2.19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now notice they twisted what Jesus said. He never said the temple of God, he said this temple. He was referring to himself, the temple of his body. He was prophesying his resurrection. And so these two witnesses misrepresented Jesus' words. And because of that, according to Deuteronomy 19, they should, they themselves should have been put to death for not properly testifying to what Jesus said. Deuteronomy 19 says the judge is to investigate a malicious witness and if the witness is proven false, he is to be put to death. Well, Caiaphas asked Jesus if the charges are accurate. Jesus remained silent. Then he places him under oath. I charge you, tell us. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus responds, you've said it yourself. And then he quotes Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas is enraged. Charges Jesus with blaspheme. The Sanhedrin agrees. Now according to Leviticus 24.16, if someone commits blasphemy against the Lord, they shall surely be put to death. And so, crucify him. Well, not at this point, but put him to death. Put him to death. Listen, they had no problem breaking the ninth commandment, but they're going to charge him for a crime. Now, Declaring Jesus guilty of death under Jewish law is one thing. Now they've got to convince the Roman government that he is guilty of death under Roman law. But before they do it, the leaders, these are the leaders, spit in his face and beat him with their fist. By the way, spitting in someone's face in Jewish culture is the highest form of insult. Then they blindfold him and slap him around. Listen, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, prove it. Identify who hit you? And this brings us to the end, to verse 69 to 75, and the protest of Peter. Verse 69 to 75. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. He had gone out to the gateway. Another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know that man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them. Eve, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear. I don't know that man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Peter remembered the words which Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. You recall in the previous paragraph, Peter had followed to the courtyard. He's now sitting in outside in the courtyard. A servant girl approaches and accuses him of being with Jesus, and he denies it in front of everybody. He broke the ninth commandment himself. Don't bear false witness. Peter then moves to the gate. Listen, I've got to get away from these people. So now he moves to the gate. Another servant girl approaches him. And accuses him of being with Jesus. He again protests and he denies it this time with an oath. So he bears false witness. But now, guess what? He also breaks the, ten, the third commandment. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember, taking an oath is to swear by the Lord's name. I swear by the name of Yahweh, I don't know the man. Wow. 
Then some bystanders accused Peter of being one of Jesus' followers. And now Peter begins to curse and swear and protest against knowing Jesus. Now that term, that verb to curse, implies that Peter called down harm from heaven upon himself. I swear by heaven, strike me down with lightning if I'm lying. That's what he was saying. And then he invokes, he swears or invokes another oath. Similar to the one he just took. By the name of God, I swear I don't know that man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And he remembered Jesus' prediction. And he went out and he wept bitterly. You know, it had only been a few hours before and Peter was so confident. So confident. That he would stand by Jesus' side till the end. But Peter, my friends, was blind to his weakness. He had a pride problem. And as you, we've already seen, he values his physical comfort over spiritual needs. My friends, a great lesson for us here in Peter's protest. We need to be aware, we need to pay attention to areas of weakness. We all have them. We need to be aware of what they are. We need to be aware of pride. We all deal with pride. And we need to be aware of placing our physical comfort over spiritual needs. Friends, the Messiah must be both God and man. And these nine events corroborate for us how Jesus is God. He is divine. He controlled all of the events leading to his death. These nine events also corroborate for us that he is indeed man. Listen, he had a need for fellowship. He had a need for sustenance. He had a need for emotional support. All basic human needs. It was not a spirit that was kissed or spit upon or slapped and beaten. That's, those things happen to a flesh and blood person. Jesus is both God and man. He is the Messiah who will save his people from their sins. Friends, Caiaphas asked an important question. Jesus, to Jesus, who are you? Every one of us needs to ask that same question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the God-man? Is he the Messiah? Listen, he is the one who was sent to pay the penalty of your sin and mine. And because of our sin, we are all destined to the lake of fire. But the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus, died and shed his blood. He was buried. He rose again the third day to pay the penalty of your sin and mine. Scripture tells us that anyone who repents in their sin and believes the gospel, believes the good news that Jesus died, buried, and rose again, will be saved and escape eternal damnation. So friend, maybe you've sat here today and you've gone through these nine events and you've come to the conclusion He really is who He said He was. He is the Messiah. Friend, don't let the moment escape. Confess your sin, repent of your sin. And put your faith that this Messiah, this one Jesus, died, shed his blood, buried, rose again to pay the penalty of your sin. Confess your sin, cry out to the Lord, and be saved. Father, we come humbly before your throne of grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, may we never forget Mary's example of sacrificial worship. And Father, help us. Help us to follow that example. Help us to sacrificially worship you. And Lord, forgive us when we put our physical comforts above our spiritual needs. Lord, show us our weaknesses. Help us to be aware of our weaknesses. Protect us from our own flesh. From the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, and from that pride of life. Father, we want to give you all the praise and all the glory for sending the Messiah. And Father, Lord, if there's someone here today 
who's gone through all the motions over the years, but has come to the place where they, they acknowledge they're a sinner and they've never been saved. Lord, I pray that today they might repent and believe that this Messiah paid the penalty of their sin. And that, Father, you might save them as they cry out to their Lord. To you be all the glory. To you be all the praise. Amen.